and welcome to episode number 176 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am your host. I am online editor for the Northern Miner, and I also help out with social media, where there is quite a bit going on. It's looking, I think, you know, Robert Friedland, you can tell he is the showman of showmen with his Star Wars themed Revenge of the Miners trailer. Uh, yeah, I'm check it out at Northern Miner. We have some pictures. Leave our content supervisor, David Perry, has taken some pictures. He's done some recordings. So that will also be coming up in future episodes. So there, there is a lot to look forward to. And uh, yeah, PDAC is in full gear here. I'm recording this early on Tuesday morning. And from the reports that I see and the general sense, it sounds like PDAC attendance is down, but not out. I saw the word sparse used in a mining.com article. The prime minister showed up. So that, you have to say, is a vote of confidence in the PDAC organizers and in the whole, in the context of the whole coronavirus outbreak. And actually, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, he does mention that at the beginning of his speech at PDAC, which we are going to feature on this program. So we have Justin's speech, and I think it's important to focus on these influential voices within the mining industry as we try to get to a deeper understanding of that story, of what is going on in the mining world. And I think uh, you have to look at the people with the really big voices, but also the people with the small voices. And there were protesters at the Predium speech. There were protesters and we have the recording. I haven't listened to that yet, but that is also coming up. I may just keep those protesters in there. So we also want to focus on the small voices too, but it's important that we also listen to the uh, influential voices, the the decision makers, uh, not only to understand, but also to scrutinize what they are saying. So we have Justin. We also have Catherine Raw from Barrick, and she gives a very interesting speech on gold depletion. There hasn't been enough work in greenfield projects and how the Mining industry, particularly the gold industry, could start to run a bit short on, she doesn't say short on supply, but basically says that, you know, to keep the current status quo of supply may be trickier than it looks. And don't forget, go back to two episodes ago when we were quoting the Barrick conference call with Mark Bristow. And he was also saying this a similar thing that this whole depletion of reserves in the gold sector is a concern. And so Catherine Raw repeats it. And so we're going to go a little bit in depth. Uh, we, Trish Saywell, our acting editor in chief and senior reporter, has written a massive 3,600 word article on Catherine Raw's speech. I read the whole thing and it's an excellent read and a very nice compliment to Mark Bristow's conference call from two episodes ago. And what you're going to see is a lot of the same themes. And you also get the ESG theme at the end. And again, uh, it's this real emphasis on ESG being at the core. And what Catherine Ross says in her speech is that 
those companies that don't put ESG at the core will be taken over. So says Barrick. So welcome to 2020. Welcome to PDAC 2020. This is a PDAC special episode. And we also have some other news, which we will get into. And if you're looking to say hi, we have several staff members, sales guys. We have the publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, at our booth, booth number 810 at the Metro Convention Center. It's in the South Building. You can say hi to Michael or Joe or George. Go meet the staff. We have a massive PDAC issue, which is available. It's the PDAC Mega issue. I think it's 64 pages. And there is a gold special. There is a battery metal special, uh, global exploration special, and some other special that I can't even remember. That's how, There's four specials in there. And there is a ton of commentary. We have two Jeffrey Christian pieces, which makes it well worth your visit. And one last thing on Catherine Raw. She is a former... Young Mining Professionals Award winner from 2018. So it's interesting to see how people come back in the news. Looks like she goes from victory to victory, from summit to summit. So you see how it's a smaller world than we think sometimes. And so 2018 winner Catherine Raw is now our headline on the Northern Miner website, speaking for Barrick. All that and more, and also, of course, metal prices. So if you want to find us online, simply go to northernminer.com. If you want to find us on Twitter... Go to at Northern Miner. If you want to find us on Instagram, go to at the Northern Miner. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and wherever podcasts are available. And if you want to find us in person, go to booth number 810 at the Metro Convention Center. We have very friendly staff. And if you have any advertising questions, we have great rates. And we work with Canadian Mining Journal and mining.com. So there is a ton of opportunities available if you're trying to reach the mining industry. We also have this podcast. On to the news. Catherine Raw, the executive responsible for Barrick Gold's North American region, told a luncheon at the Prospectors and Developers Association in Toronto that M&A is back. Over the last 18 months, the market has witnessed the $5 billion merger of Rangold and Barrick, the $13 billion joint venture between Barrick and Newmont in Nevada, and Newmont's $12.5 billion takeover of Gold Corp, along with 27 other transactions in the space. These aren't mega in the broader market, but they are mega in our industry. What we've seen is a pickup in activity that is really quite remarkable. That consolidation will continue, and I believe it will spread into the mining industry as a whole because they are facing many of the same challenges that the gold industry is facing. And one of the interesting things about Catherine Raw is she was in the fund management business. She co-managed BlackRock's flagship mining funds, and she also worked with Anglo-American in London and Johannesburg as a geological assistant in Sweden. So she has some financial background, and I believe it was BlackRock that said maybe six weeks ago that they are looking to only invest in basically climate change-friendly companies. A little bit oversimplify it, but that's basically what they're saying. And also one of the highlights of this is how Catherine Raw is saying that keeping resources full will be tricky. Quote, the industry faces an environment where a depleting asset base, a lack of new discoveries, and a deteriorating quality of reserves means that inorganic growth is really the only solution versus organic growth. And so I think we can 
deduce from that that she means M&A in terms of inorganic growth. What's relevant here is how the production for the industry, despite rising gold prices, is plateauing. What we've seen is that the growth that was really driven from the 2004 to 2008 period has now come into production. And even despite stable to rising gold prices, we're not seeing that next generation of projects coming through in the pipeline. So the forecast is that production will start falling. And even with higher prices, apart from alluvial production, where you do see very elastic responses to prices, particularly out of Russia, the industry as a whole is inelastic. It's not price sensitive. We've probably got a seven-year, if not 10-year lead time to new projects, and that is very much dependent on what the exploration pipeline looks like. So then you look at what the new discoveries we've seen over the last decade. Do we have a pipeline to be able to supply the industry going forward? And the answer is no. And she continues on the point, we are still effectively living off the discoveries of the 1990s. And so the consequence of that is this. The industry is living on borrowed time effectively. Reserves are shrinking, and the quality of those reserves is deteriorating. So again, going back to Mark Bristow's conference call from two episodes ago, I believe he said we reached a peak gold. We're around that time now, he was saying. So here Catherine Raw is echoing the sentiment. So you can see, I think another thing we can sort of gather from this is Barrick has good communications because they are on message. When you see Mark Bristow speak or when you listen to him speak for the conference call, he is effectively saying the same thing that Catherine Ra is saying. So they're on the same page. And I don't think that stuff doesn't happen accidentally. Ra noted that in order to grow reserves, companies typically, typically just change their price assumptions. She continues, what's interesting over the last three years is that even despite gold prices being stable to higher, even despite all of this change, we're beginning to see grades deteriorate again. We're running out of the good stuff and we're having to start mining low grades again so that what we've got is this issue of deteriorating quantity and quality affecting the industry. And her solution is M&A and consolidation. Quote, Barrick and Newmont are prime examples of that. We came out with our 2019 results and we were able to say we grew reserves year on year, but we grew a lot of those reserves through acquisition. What was interesting about Barrick relative to Newmont is that we increased the quality of those gold reserves as well. Slight dig at Newmont, I guess they feel like Barrick is increasing the quality of their gold reserves more than Newmont is. Partners in Nevada, but yeah, still like to give little digs at each other. The question for the industry now is if it's going to consolidate, if we're going to see this chase for inorganic growth to be able to tell the market that we are able to maintain production at current levels, that we are able to deliver value, you have to keep the quality of your reserves either the same or improving, unless there's going to be some major technological or structural change to offset deterioration of quality. But this issue, this lack of growth, this lack of new discovery, and this deterioration and depletion of existing reserves is forcing the industry to look at one another to cannibalize in order to be able to stand still or enable to prove they're adding value to their shareholders. You're not really seeing too many people talk about this. And Barrick is, we might say, is sounding the alarm on this. And then she talks a little bit about the equity markets and financing and capital availability. The equity market isn't open to gold companies in the way that it used to be, she said. There is a scarcity of new capital. If you look at 2019, 
You can see it is the lowest issuance of new capital in the Canadian base and precious metals market for over a decade. And this is Trish Saywell, one of the biggest structural changes to the investor base is that the specialty funds that were driving the funding for junior and mid-tier companies in the last cycle, quote, have all but disappeared. And back to Catherine Raw, what we've seen is the memories of the last cycle, poor returns, low liquidity, have meant the end investor, the retail investor, and the institutional investor that were providing the capital to these specialist funds have walked away. So those funds are now not available. And what we've seen to take their place is increasingly passive investment in the industry. And she continues, and I'm going down a couple of paragraphs. I'm not going to read you guys the whole 3,600-word article. You'll have to go to northernminer.com for that. And there are lots of nuggets. We're sort of touching on some of the highlights, but there is a lot more in here. And she continues... What we've seen, particularly for the juniors and developers, is we've seen a lack of interest from generalist investors. But there are no specialist investors to attract. So how can the industry remain relevant? How do we get those generalist investors back into the gold market? And what will the consequence of that be for consolidation and M&A in the future? I just feel like I'm listening in on a conversation between Mark Bristow and Catherine Raw. Uh, you get the sense that these are questions that they ask themselves in private. Who knows? That's just the sense I get. And then she drops some numbers. Raw noted that the entire precious metals industry is worth $355 billion, which compares to single companies like Exxon, which is worth $250 billion, and shedding billions by the week, if you look at the stock price, with a nice healthy dividend, though. And Apple at $1.4 trillion. So if we look at that, so the precious metals industry is worth basically a quarter of Apple's market cap. So you could fit four precious metals industries into Apple. That's pretty impressive. And the S&P index as a whole is worth 28.7 trillion. And you compare 355 billion to 28.7 trillion, precious metals, it's not a huge business in the big scheme of things. And here's a quote, if you're a fund manager and you have a choice of where to invest and you say, should I invest in a junior exploration company? Or should I go overweight or underweight Apple? The priority is always going to be the larger companies where you can trade in and out very quickly, where you can deal with investor outflows and inflows, where you're not stuck and exposed to random risks like environmental disasters or regulation issues or government taxation. The choice to take a risk in the precious metals sector, given its size, is a pretty off-the-wall choice to make. And so, on that basis, we have to encourage the industry and encourage the market to pay attention. And the way you can do that is to provide scale and provide liquidity, and the companies that can do that will attract premium valuations. So this is really pushing Barrick as a attractive investment if you're going to go to gold. You, basically, Barrick is saying you need to go with someone like us who has scale and liquidity. And I think if you're a fund manager, like we talked about this in an earlier episode with Newmont being... I think they're getting the memo, these big mining companies, in terms of uh, increasing the dividend. They're trying to act more like typical S&P 500 companies. And she continues on the scale issue. The scale issue is encouraging intermediates to consolidate. It's encouraging single mine producers to join with other single mine producers to create diversification, to persuade investors that they're not exposed to too much risk by owning them and is ultimately driving what is a consolidation trend within the industry. She also touches on the ESG issue, saying that, quote, suddenly investors seem to have got a conscience. 
And she continues, I say that cynically because I was an investor and none of this is new, but it's as if we've only just woken up to this. ESG is not a new phrase. Corporate government, social responsibility, license to operate, sustainability. These are all words that have been going on well, at least since I came out of university. I remember I did a course on how can mining be sustainable given it is exploiting finite resources. So this challenge is really only relevant today because the specialist investors that understood these risks and could deal with these risks are no longer the marginal buyer of mining stocks. The marginal buyer of mining stocks is now either the passive fund that needs to justify its existence in the world, and so it claims it's that oversight and corporate governance and ESG focus that it applies to all of its investments that is the way it adds value, or it's the generalist investor the institution that is not used to taking the kind of risks that exist in our industry. So isn't that interesting? Catherine Raw is really connecting ESG with passive investing. And she's saying these massive passive investment vehicles are now becoming ESG conscious. And so this has impact because now a huge percentage of the market is now passive. So... There's no way around this ESG issue. If you're the kind of person that wants to avoid ESG, all the oxygen is rushing out of your financing. So there is a lot more here. It goes into Tesla and solar panels. There's a lot of very interesting stuff. Trust, which is a theme of an earlier podcast. There is a ton here. So enjoy that one. That is our headline on the Northern Miner, and that is taken from PDAC 2020. And turning to our next story, we have Wallbridge acquires Balmoral in a $110 million all-share deal. Developer Wallbridge Mining has announced plans to acquire Explorer Balmoral Resources. A few years ago, Balmoral was the darling. Then it dropped down to something like $0.09 cents a share, and now it's back up to $0.46. Cents. It's been on a tear the last six months or so, last time I checked. And so now they are being acquired by Wallbridge Mining in an all-share deal worth $110 million and consolidating the Fenelon Gold property, which is in the ABTB Greenstone Belt. And we have a quote from Wallbridge President, CEO, and Director Mars Cord. The combination of our two companies creates an entity with a solid balance sheet, a diverse yet focused project portfolio, a motivated management group experienced in exploration, development, and production, and the scale, resource growth potential, and discovery upside that gives us the opportunity to build on the strengths of both companies. And yeah, Eric Sprott is Wallbridge and Balmoral's largest shareholder, and he supports the transaction. However, its approval is contingent on the votes cast at a meeting of Balmoral shareholders to be held in May the arrangement agreement includes reciprocal board support and a $2.5 million break fee payable to Wallbridge under certain circumstances. So more M&A to Catherine Raw's point in the sector. And you can find that on northernminer.com. There's a beautiful, beautiful helicopter picture from Balmoral. And so a nice sunset. I put that on Instagram once and it went over very, very well. And as well... On the environmental front, which will lead us into our feature content, Rio Tinto to spend $1 billion to reach zero emissions. Rio Tinto, you, don't you just get the sense that these big mining companies 
they're getting the memo on this ESG, and they can't say it fast enough. Every we looked at Barrick, we looked at Freeport, we looked at Cameco here, Rio Tinto. You get the sense that the majors are getting the memo, don't you? Rio Tinto will spend one billion dollars over the next five years to reduce its carbon footprint and have net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. But some analysts say that announcement is a minor step towards helping the mining industry achieve climate goals, delivering full-year results for 2019, in which the company recorded its highest profit in eight years. CEO Jean-Sébastien Jacques said the world has got to a point where it is necessary to sacrifice growth to meet climate targets. That is a heck of a statement from a CEO. There is a new business climate. Quote, the challenge for the world and for the resources industry is to continue to the focus on poverty reduction and wealth creation while delivering climate action, Jack said. This will require complex trade-offs. No doubt about that. You know, just from my perch here, this is unthinkable 10 years ago for a CEO to say something like that. Like, it's just, you wonder if he would be fired and... Now it's like, if you don't say that, you'll be fired. So like, wow, uh, uh, a remarkable statement. Rio's boss at the helm since 2016 said that lower consumption, growth and returns are some of the sacrifices consumers, governments and shareholders must all be willing to make. This is especially true for the natural resources industry, which has come under increasing pressure to curb emissions. Jacques continues, there are no easy answers. There is no clear pathway right now for the world to get to the zero emissions by 2050. The ambition is clear, but the pathway is not. For Julian Kettle, Wood McKenzie, Vice Chairman of Metals and Mining, Rio's plan to decarbonize its globe-spanning operations are a, quote, small but significant step in the right direction. Setting Rio Tinto's U.S. $1 billion in context, this represents just 16% of the dividend it distributed in 2019, or just 5% of its reported EBITDA of $21.2 billion for the same year, Kettle said. Well, 16% of its dividend it distributed, I guess the $1 billion is over the next five years. I mean, it didn't impress Julian Kettle from Wood McKenzie too much. 16% of a dividend... It's not nothing. Kettle continues, put another way, on a 100% basis, Rio Tinto reported iron ore production of 327 million tons in 2019, a US $1 billion green investment, while laudable, could be funded by a 30 cent ton rise in the iron ore price. The industry needs to do much more, he noted. So (laughs) Rio Tinto probably thought they would get a pat on the back. Thank you, Rio Tinto. Nope. Sorry, guys, that's not enough for us. And a little on BHP here, the no emissions goal would be easier to achieve for Rio Tinto than other global miners, such as rival BHP, because the world's second largest mining company does not mine coal or oil. Unlike BHP, however, Rio has not set a target to reduce so-called scope three emissions, those produced when customers burn or process a company's raw materials. The company argues any targets on its scope 3 emissions would be impossible to meet because it has no control over how steelmakers use the iron ore it mines. Just from an editorial point of view here, it's a little hard to hold someone responsible for how the metal is used. I think if they are responsible for their own 
emissions and they get it to zero and then someone buys their product and does something terrible with it, I don't think you can hold Rio Tinto responsible for that. The scope three emissions. I wonder if we're going to hear more about scope three in the future. That's just my small editorial there. Feel free to disagree. Leave comments on our SoundCloud, if you like, or on our webpage. Rio Tinto is making some moves here. Last year, Rio inked a preliminary deal with China's largest steel producer, Baou Steel Group, to develop new ways to cut carbon emissions along the supply chain. Steelmaking is a highly polluting industry that involves using coking coal, which, which is responsible for up to 9% of global greenhouse emissions. And there's just a little bit on the COVID-19 virus. Rio said its products were continuing to reach customers, but it was seeking ways to adjust to the impact of the COVID-19 virus on global demand for commodities in the months to come. And we're just about to take a look at that. The next six months could bring some challenges, Jacques said. Today our iron ore books are full, but we are likely to see some short-term impacts. China is one of Rio Tinto's main customers. The company is anticipating an impact in its iron ore shipments to the regions during the first quarter. So there we have it. Rio Tinto making moves. It's not impressing the analysts. Your editor here is... Somewhat impressed. And so here we have it. Let's see what happens. And I guess one of the takeaways from this is let's keep our ears open for the scope three emissions. Scope three emissions, this sort of secondary, uh, how customers burn or process a company's raw materials. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. metal prices. We would like to first thank our friends at infomine.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. If you ever want to find them yourself, simply Google infomine and metal prices and you will see this page. And on March 3rd, gold is trading at $1,598.84 per ounce. This is $54 lower than last week. And silver is also down at $16.81. That is $1.57 cheaper than last week. Platinum is also down at $870.77, and that is $95 lower than last week. Palladium is at $2,531.46. And that is $129 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals on February 28th, copper is at $2.53. That is six cents lower than last week's quote. Aluminum is at 75 cents, which is a penny lower than last week. Lead is unchanged at 85 cents. Nickel is down 12 cents. At $5.52. Tin is down 14 cents at $7.36. Cobalt is trading at $14.97 per pound, which is 23 cents lower than last week. And zinc continues to drop lower to 92 cents per pound, 3 cents lower than last week. And 
it wasn't that long ago, maybe three months ago, zinc was trading at $1.15 per pound. So zinc prices really, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's crashing or collapsing, but it's one before that. It's cratering. Let's say it's cratering. And uh, there have been stories of companies that have had to adjust because of the zinc price. So with that, those are your metal prices and on to our feature content. Coming up, we have Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. He is talking at PDAC, and that was done on the Mondays on March 2nd yesterday afternoon. So this is very fresh content, and Justin Trudeau had a lot to say about climate change and the mining industry and how he had a vision Canadian mining could be leaders of responsible mining globally. He was introduced by Seamus O'Regan, who I remember from morning television. I guess he's the Minister of Natural Resources now. What a what a career that guy's had, hey, all over the place. And uh, he gave a speech earlier at PDAC uh, we may turn to that at another point just to see what Seamus is, is up to, see what he's saying about natural resources. But back to the prime minister, uh, in, in some respects, I got the sense that this was a response to Tech's decision to cancel its Frontier oil sands project last week. That decision was also based on climate change and the changing uh, social climate over these kinds of issues. Uh, I, I thought the most poignant part of the speech that we're going to listen to is Trudeau's comparison of the climate debate to the NAFTA debate of the late 80s, where he said it bitterly divided Canadians. But by the mid-90s, about five years later, everybody basically saw the common sense of NAFTA. So Justin Trudeau lays out a vision of a consensus between the economy and the environment along those lines. Again, he sees the role of Canadian miners is to be the leaders in responsible mining. So with that, hope you enjoy our feature content and I will see you on the other side. Good afternoon, everyone. I want to thank Ian McKay from Invest in Canada for hosting this event, and of course, thank you all for joining us. Before we get into things, I want to take a moment to talk about the coronavirus. I know people are concerned. I want to assure everyone that our health officials and professionals are working tirelessly to keep Canada and Canadians safe. Our government is taking a multi-departmental approach through our incident response group, which has been meeting regularly. We're basing our responses on the best science and evidence available, and we continue to monitor global developments, both in terms of health and on the economy. Toronto learned a lot in coping with the SARS outbreak back in 2003, and we're applying many of those hard-earned lessons. We will continue to do everything necessary to keep Canadians safe and ensure up-to-date information so you can keep your families safe. I've been very much looking forward to this event because it highlights the kind of future that Canadians are building right across the country. A future where innovation creates good jobs for people, where we grow the economy while protecting our environment, 
a future where Canada is the best place in the world to invest. Mining has long been a fundamental building block of our economy. Mineral production happens in every Canadian province and territory. Workers have often told me, this is the kind of job I can raise a family on, the kinds of opportunities that keep our young people in our town, the kinds of projects that lift up entire communities, including many Indigenous communities. And that's why our government wants to keep our mining sector strong and growing. We want to attract new investments to keep good jobs here, create new opportunities for workers and business owners alike, and maintain Canada's stellar reputation in this field. But we're meeting at an important point in time. The global economy is rapidly changing. Earlier this year, BlackRock's Larry Fink announced sweeping changes to the fund's investment strategy, recognizing climate change as a defining factor in any company's future. Larry acknowledged that climate change is fundamentally reshaping finance just as it is causing companies, sectors, and entire countries to reassess their core assumptions about what tomorrow holds. However, even as this reality takes hold, around the world and right here in Canada, the debate between environment and economy is becoming increasingly contentious and polarized. And I think we can all agree that it's unhelpful for polarized views to define the battleground of a debate. To adapt to major disruptions like climate change and seize new opportunities in emerging markets like clean tech, what we need to do is build common ground instead. And that's what I came to talk to you about today. But first I want to talk about mining, because yours is an industry that already understands that good climate policy is good business. De plus en plus, les investisseurs cherchent à financer des projets dans des endroits où les gouvernements ont mis, en, ont mis en place un cadre solide pour concilier le développement des ressources et la lutte contre les changements climatiques. Depuis le début de notre mandat, notre gouvernement a entrepris des démarches importantes et ambitieuses pour répondre et s'adapter à l'urgence climatique. Nous avons notamment mis un prix sur la pollution, Nous allons bannir les plastiques nocifs à usage unique. Nous investissons dans les technologies propres, la formation des compétences et dans l'innovation. Et nous avons renforcé le processus d'évaluation environnementale pour les grands projets d'infrastructure de façon à ce qu'ils tiennent compte dès le début des perspectives des communautés autochtones et respectent leurs droits. Now, some would have you believe that having a serious plan to fight climate change is bad for business. But let's look at the numbers. Just last week, Statistics Canada reported that foreign direct investment was up 18% compared to the 2018 total. The data shows, yeah, there's an applause there. Yeah. The data shows that more investors are looking to Canada as a great place to invest, and we're already seeing groundbreaking initiatives take shape in our communities. Global aluminum industry leaders, Alcoa and Rio Tinto, chose Saguenay, Quebec, to launch a new 
revolutionary smelting process for aluminum with zero greenhouse gas emissions. It actually produces oxygen. That's the kind of investment we want to attract. And most of you already know the thriving mining industry and a thriving natural resource sector don't have to be impediments to fighting climate change. They can not only be part of that fight, but essential partners. In a letter announcing Tech's decision to withdraw the Frontier Oil Sands project, CEO Don Lindsay recognized that global capital markets are changing rapidly and investors and customers are increasingly looking for jurisdictions to have a framework in place that reconciles, reconciles resource development and climate change in order to produce the cleanest possible products. The minus, mining industry can not only drive the clean transition, but profit from it. To produce high-density batteries and wind turbines, you need copper, nickel, and cobalt. To build a solar panel, you need 19 metals and minerals. Well, Canada is home to 14 of them. Lorsqu'on parle d'emploi vert ou de la transition écologique, les gens pensent pas toujours au secteur minier, mais c'est une industrie qui a un rôle essentiel à jouer. Vous êtes nombreux dans le secteur à le savoir. Déjà, vous innovez. Vous adoptez des pratiques plus responsables et vous explorez de nouvelles opportunités qui découlent d'une économie plus verte. But to keep our mining sector strong, you need a partner in government that will help you grow and remain competitive on the global market. Our government is that partner. Last year, Last year, right here at PDAC, we, together with so many of you as crucial partners, launched the Canadian Minerals and Metals Plan to raise awareness about the importance of this sector, respond to new challenges facing your industry, and help you seize new opportunities in a changing economy. Yeah, now you can applaud yourselves. So that, that was a great initiative and continues to be. The Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, is here to work with you to advance an action plan which will be launched later this year. En même temps, on explore de nouvelles avenues de collaboration avec nos partenaires internationaux. En décembre, le Canada et les États-Unis ont signé un protocole d'entente sur les minéraux de terre rares, rare earth minerals, qui sont essentiels au développement de nouvelles technologies et à la fabrication de produits comme les téléphones intelligents et les ordinateurs. Il nous reste encore du travail à faire à ce niveau-là, mais notre objectif consiste à devenir un fournisseur important de minéraux de terre rares sur le marché mondial. When we talk about exporting rare earth minerals, it's not just about being uh, a present partner, but a reliable source of those minerals that the world so desperately needs. And Canada, as you all know, is that reliable partner. Our government recognizes that moving towards a low-carbon economy is a big adjustment for many industries, including, including yours. And this transformation won't happen overnight. It will take some time, but our government is firmly committed to supporting your industry during this period of change. As people in this room know, electric vehicles are not just for city streets. 
They are for cleaning mining, cleaner mining operations, but protects the health of workers and the environment. Canada is now home to its first all-electric gold mine, the Borden Mine in Shaklo, Ontario, which our government was proud to support. And Canada's own McLean Engineering of Collingwood has already delivered electric vehicle solutions to nine mines across Canada. But let's be honest, this is only the beginning. Our government wants to support this sector in accelerating the use of clean mining trucks here at home. And we know Canadian companies like McLean, like Covaterra of Sudbury and Prairie Machine of Saskatoon can be strong competitors in delivering electric mining vehicle equipment to mines around the world. So today, I'm announcing that we will extend the existing zero emission vehicle incentive for businesses to include off-road vehicles like mining fleets. Look at that, a standing ovation. Nice. In Canada, heavy industry accounts for 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. This new incentive will help reduce emissions from transport and help companies save money. When it comes to fighting climate change and safeguarding the environment, our government is unapologetically ambitious. We put a price on pollution right across the country. We will meet and exceed our 2030 Paris targets. And this year, we will begin to work on a plan to achieve net zero by 2050. Now, reaching net zero will take some time. To get this right, we have a lot of work to do with Canadians and with industry leaders. For the good of our economy, for the good of our country, we need to do this well. So we need your input. Transforming our economy for the future is not something one government can or should do alone. We need governments of all orders, and much more than that, we need businesses and industry. This is the common ground I'm talking about. Think about the free trade debate here in Canada in the 1980s. Many of you in the room will remember it well. The 1988 election on free trade with the U.S. was fiercely polarized and polarizing. It broke along political lines, divided families, communities, and the entire country. And yet, barely five years and one change in government later, we expanded Canada-U.S. free trade into NAFTA with very little fuss. And now, of course, we have a strong national consensus across the country and across party lines that trade is good for the economy and good for Canada, which is why we are still the first and only G7 country with a free trade agreement with every other G7 country. We went, we went from a super divided country angsting over a key issue that went to the core of our future, our economy, our, our identity as Canadians, 
I mean, that 88 election was one of the first elections I was, re well, it wasn't the first election I was conscious of for <laughs> personal reasons, but uh, I was engaged in it as a, as a, as a, young, a young Canadian focused on this free trade debate that was wrenching us apart. And then, mid, early mid-90s, suddenly we were part of NAFTA and there was no debate over it anymore. We knew that trade was essential and free trade was even better. How did we get there? How did we go from an incredibly polarizing debate to us realizing, oh, it's not about whether we do it, it's how we do it right. Well, that's exactly the same situation we're in right now, where the debate over climate change, over economy versus environment, is just as polarized, just as divisive. And the voices on the margins of that debate are incredibly loud. But that challenge we face now to reach that consensus that Canadians know needs to be there. That of course we need to protect the environment at the same time as we create good jobs. Of course we can only create a better, stronger economy for everyone if we are fighting climate change at the same time. We know that. Canadians know that. We just haven't reached that point of consensus where we argue about the best way to do it. There are still pockets of this country and the political debate arguing about whether or not to protect the environment. But as we saw from the free trade debate, that can flip fairly quickly. It won't be easy. But we all know, you all know, that's where we need to go. In the coming year, we want to hear from you on how Canada should innovate and transform our economy to keep good jobs here and create new ones. We want to work with you to grow Canada's prosperity by taking carbon pollution out of our environment and out of our economy. This is a big project, not one that any government can do on its own. We all need to roll up our sleeves and pitch in. Governments, businesses, civil society, indigenous communities, and all Canadians. The only way we create a better future is if we do it together. There is no doubt that the global economy and global markets for resources are changing. And for a country like Canada, where the national economy was built on the natural resources sector, there's a big transformation ahead, to be sure. Let's remember, this is Canada. We are incredibly rich in natural resources the world needs, and we always will be. Natural resources will always be a big part of our economy, no matter how much we invest in AI or grow our cities. We just need to transform our approach to meet a challenging future. Now, for the people who've worked in these industries, in some cases for generations, this can seem really daunting. Our government wants to make sure they have the right support. Leading the clean energy transition means rethinking how we harness Canada's resources, not whether or not we harness them at all. It means seeing and meeting the challenges and opportunities before us head on. It means being ready to innovate and collaborate. 
Canada is uniquely positioned to be the world's cleanest supplier of metals and minerals. And you all have an integral role to play in making this a reality. If industries like yours continue to innovate, if governments work together on a serious plan to protect the environment, if we continue to invest in training and support workers through this economic transformation, I know that together we will absolutely build this better future. Merci beaucoup, mes amis. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for once again joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast, a special PDAC edition featuring the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on his vision for a consensus between the environment and the economy and the mining industry. If you would like to comment, feel free to leave us a comment on our SoundCloud, our webpage, and feel free to send this to your friends. Or if you know a geology student, feel free to send it to them. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care.